That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, before God and all the people, and how our high priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is well spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's retrace the sequence of events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. One week before Resurrection Sunday, Jesus crested the Mount of Olives. Then he rode a donkey into the city. A mere five days later, he was crucified. Then on Sunday, he arose and met two disciples walking to Emmaus. Seven days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas. A week or two later, he met Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Let's travel through time to the days before and after Jesus' resurrection and relive these events just as they happened in real time. If you were here for the Good Friday service, we talked about the seven last words of Jesus and the segment that Mark led us was a place where Jesus cried out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's very intriguing to me that also in Psalm 22, Jesus did not quote this from the cross, but it's in the same Psalm. We read this, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. 
This is a psalm from which Jesus quotes on the cross where he's saying, why have you forsaken me? But the psalmist is saying, but I am confident of this, God, that you are not a disappointment. Now, he's acknowledging the possibility that someone could be disappointed with God. In fact, the psalmist trusts well, but there are others who didn't do so well. Here's Jeremiah 44, 18. And here the prophet Jeremiah is actually quoting something that the people are saying. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out libations to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. Basically what they're saying is when we stopped worshiping a false goddess, everything turned south and we start worshiping you, God, and we're in trouble. It's a way of saying, God, you haven't come through for us. We were better off worshiping someone else. Sometimes it may feel like God has been a disappointment. And today we're going to listen in on a conversation. The passage was just read. Where two disciples are reeling from disappointment. Let's get some background. These two disciples, now we don't know them. You'll get to meet them in heaven and talk to them about what it was like. But they had gone all in for Jesus. According to what they say in the passage that was read, they actually have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The one who's going to come and deliver Israel. A week earlier, a week, we're on the exact day when they were walking to Emmaus. One week earlier, they had been a part of an incredible victory parade. I mean, everybody was going, we're finally there. But their bubble had burst three days before. And now they were embarking on a long, slow, sad walk home to a place called Emmaus, which was a day's journey, not far. And behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken a place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them said, named Cleopas, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? By the way, Jesus never asks a question to which he does not know the answer, but he's asking for their benefit. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find the body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. Disappointment is in the driver's seat. It says they stood still looking sad when he asks, what, what, what happened? They can hardly walk. Talk about irony. <laughs> they are gripped by sadness because Jesus is dead. And Jesus is alive and the one talking to them. <laughs> but they don't see it. And there's a reason why they're prevented from recognizing him. When they recount what has happened, they say, he was a prophet. That's the best possible face they can put on it. Was meaning he's now a dead prophet. It's the third day, meaning reality check. <laughs> we haven't seen him. We saw him die on the cross. But there's no change. They say we were hoping. And that verb is in the imperfect, which is a Greek tense that means... This is something that was going on in the past, but no more. We were hoping. What were you hoping for? That he was going to redeem Israel. That we as a nation were going to experience a dramatic turnaround. But that hope has been dashed. Yes, there were some women who went to the tomb and they said they saw an angel. But when, when someone went to the tomb, all we saw was an empty tomb. We did not see him. Where are the facts? And so they're walking home. William Hendrickson says this, and I think it's a great summary. Their master gone. Their friend, and what a friend, departed. Their plans wrecked, their hopes shattered. They are perplexed, baffled, they despair. Like men whose none too sturdy vessel is frozen solid in the Arctic ice pack. These two followers of Jesus are reeling from disappointment and discouragement because Jesus didn't turn out to be whom they thought. Now, they're wrong, but they're convinced that Jesus, I mean, we thought he was this, but he turned out to be this. And they are shattered and broken, disappointed, discouraged, so sad they can hardly walk. Do you identify? Have you experienced a season of silence in which you've prayed for something long and hard and it's gone unanswered? Maybe you've encountered a disaster, unforeseen, undeserved crisis or loss. And you thought, God, I thought you were going to protect me from this. Maybe it's a failure. I gave my all to something that I thought you were going to bless. I thought you were going to give me success, but you didn't. Maybe it's about broken trust. 
See, this is a part of what they were experiencing on the road. Judas, he was one of us, betrayed him. Perhaps you have someone in your life, someone who was close, who was dear to you, but who betrayed you. And you said, God, why? Maybe you're dealing with pointlessness. No one values or affirms what you're doing. I thought what I was doing mattered. There's many faces of disappointment for us, and I am confident that in this room, there are some who are walking in pain and asking the question, does God care? Maybe you've been thrust into circumstances that you wouldn't choose for yourself. You don't see the point. God, what is the point? Why are you doing this? That's where the disciples were. I can identify with this. Um, I've told you a little bit about this story in the past, but I'll, I'll give you a little more. So on June 14, 2010, Rochelle and I were in Knoxville, and this was the first time we heard this, but our son, who had just graduated from law school, was diagnosed with cancer. They told us there's a mediastinal mass about the size of a fist right behind his sternum, right beside his heart and his lungs. And in that moment, I mean, there, prior to that moment, there were all kinds of things that we thought, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this. It was like a fog descended. And the only thing Rochelle and I knew is we might lose our son. God, what are you doing? Now, I'm grateful to tell you that God delivered our son. But in that moment, we didn't know that. Jesus says to the disciples something that I'm going to show you how it can help us and how it helped Rochelle and I. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Here they are reeling from disappointment and discouragement, and Jesus says, check the book. Let's read the book. Let's see what it says. And he says, you didn't believe all the scripture. Theirs was selective belief. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. Now, he is, it's just yet future. But he's saying, you need to also believe the passages that embrace suffering, that talk about suffering, and that suffering is the path that leads to the cross where I'm going to do something profound. He also says, you know, it was necessary. What happened on the cross was not some derailment. The train is progressing and it is moving right on time. Their expectation was actually out of alignment with God's good plan. They were expecting kind of a, a political revival. 
And they didn't understand they have a much bigger problem, as do we. We talked about it on Good Friday. We talked about it last Sunday. We have a history problem. All of us in this room have done things that dishonor God. We've got a heart problem. There are ways in which we actually want to do what is wrong and are predisposed to it. And we also have a hope problem. We don't have a future. All of that Jesus solved when he went to the cross. He paid for our sins. That deals with history. He did what was necessary. He presented himself as the sacrifice for a new covenant that gives us a new heart. And he also died and arose so that he can come again and give us that kingdom that is yet coming. When we don't affirm everything God says in his word, we're sitting ducks for disappointment. Let me show you a couple passages that will help. Here's Romans 8, 38 and 39. Disappointments do not cancel or neutralize God's love, which is the promotion of our best. I am confident in this room that there are people going through difficult, challenging things. And God is not up in heaven going, oh no, what am I going to do? I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what happens to us. Whatever happens is not beyond God's ability to use to accomplish our good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, which is to become conformed to the image of his son. Everything we encounter is father-filtered. It's designed to help us become more like his son. And God is perfectly capable of using it to accomplish that. You remember what happened to Joseph? He was betrayed by his brothers. They sold him into slavery, and there he went to Egypt where he was falsely accused. He ended up in prison <laughs> for years. There came a day in which he was released from prison to become Pharaoh's advisor. And there came a day when his brothers, who had betrayed him, stood before him and he said this to them as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive yeah you meant me harm but God used it for good whatever it is you're dealing with God is capable of expressing his love to you through it as you work through it now I realize that God's good plan is on track when it doesn't seem so but we may need a new definition for success a failure that produces humility is better than success that produces pride hardship that produces dependence on him 
is better than ease that produces complacency. It's possible we're going through hard things particularly because Jesus wants us to learn some things that we wouldn't otherwise learn. When you check the book, you can see your circumstances with new eyes. And as they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he would go further, and they urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking? While he was explaining the scriptures to us on the road? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. The antidote to disappointment with God is trusting him more than our own perceptions. Their perception was, this is a disaster. It wasn't a disaster. And when they had been shown from the scriptures, this is a part of God's good plan. You can trust him. God knows what he's doing. Then in that moment, God revealed, opened their eyes, and they saw the living Jesus. Why did he not open their eyes sooner? Because they needed to see that everything that had happened was a part of God's good plan. It wasn't beyond God's ability to accomplish their good. Seeing him alive without understanding the necessity of the cross would give them an inadequate view of the cross. And Jesus first corrects this notion before revealing himself. They were looking for someone to improve their circumstances. <laughs> We thought he was going to come and redeem Israel and then we were, as a nation, we were going to be in such a better place. And that didn't happen. And what Jesus showed them from the Old Testament, now I don't know the exact verses that he showed them, but he would have shown them verses that would have underscored these things. Jesus came to be our sacrifice, to die in our place. You know, on Good Friday, we had a cross. Well, I guess that's kind of where I'm standing. We had a cross with a bunch of nails on it. And everyone came forward for communion and placed on that cross a red card, in some cases with the name of sin or sins or whatever, and placed it on the cross and then went and had communion. And so what I did is I took all of those uh, home with me and I put them in an urn and I burned them all. And you can now see, here's the, here's the ashes. But everybody's card is in here. Every, all the sins of those red cards are here. But I can't read any of them. I don't know what's on them. That's really a picture of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. All our sins felt the full wrath of God on Jesus, and they're gone. They're forgiven. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
Jesus came to solve a far greater problem than improving the, the situation and the circumstances and the government. He came to die for our sins and did, and did so effectively. At first, Jesus was crashing their pity party. <laughs> But as he spoke, a flame flickered in the ashes, and in the light they began to discern that their disappointment is based upon a failure to understand God's truth and God's bigger plan. The cross was about forgiveness. It was not a side, uh, sidebar. It was the centerpiece. When you understand the true purpose for Jesus' death, the fact that Jesus now lives demonstrates the completion of his mission. You don't walk away from the prison until the debt is paid. So when Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, how do we know that it was paid in full? Jesus walked from the prison that is death. No one else has in history up to that point. We will someday. Jesus paid the penalty and walked from the grave precisely because the debt had been paid. No one is released from prison until the debt is paid. The debt has been paid. Our sins have been forgiven. And all that is owed, Jesus paid for us. This is what they saw with their eyes. Here's what the disciples saw with their eyes. God didn't answer our prayer. We were praying and pleading that he would be the redeemer. God's plan was a total disaster. Men successfully opposed and rejected him. They actually said, we have no king but Caesar. The path on which God led us was the road to failure. Someone we trusted, Judas, betrayed us and those we love. I have wasted the last three years of my life. That's what they could say with their eyes. But now that what they see is the cross is proof God loves me. And the living Christ is proof his love cannot be thwarted even by death. Jesus, it was God's plan all along to go to the cross, to die in my place, and to now ever live as proof that my payment has been made in full. That's what was demonstrated at the cross. They discerned two things. Jesus loves them enough to die for them, and Jesus loves them perfectly. His love effectively promotes their true good despite all obstacles, including death. So, so get this for a minute. Here's two truths, all right? The cross is proof God loves me. And the name of Jesus, which is his character, tells me that he loves perfectly. The cross tells me how much he loves me. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, For God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's committed to my best and loves me without regard for whether I deserve it. And the cross is the proof. His name tells us about how he loves. In Psalm 124, 8, it says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
The name of the Lord is a summary for his character. What do we know about his character and how does that affect his, his love? We know that he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, meaning if he loves us, he can do whatever is necessary to help us. Yeah, but what if he doesn't know what he's doing? He's omniscient. He's all-wise. He can do, he has the ability to do what is in our good, and he knows what is in our best interest. Yeah, but what if he loves me today but not tomorrow? He's immutable. He never changes. What if everything he's told me about his love is not true? He's a God of all truth. He's a God of veracity. You can take his word to the bank. The cross shows this is how much I love you. You realize God couldn't love you more than he already does? He sent his son who died on the cross for you. And when God loves, he loves with a perfect love. He knows what he's doing. He's able to do what is necessary. He's not thrown back by circumstances. He loves with a perfect love. He's perfectly capable of accomplishing my good, your good. And the resurrection is the proof. When it seems like God has disappointed me, the antidote is trust. He loves me and he loves with perfect love. So now we get to choose. Will we trust our perceptions or trust him? Now I realize that there are situations and circumstances where you're saying, I, I don't know. I mean, God, do you really know what you're doing? I mean, this is what has happened. Surely things have gotten out of control. God loves you. The cross is the proof. God loves you with a perfect love. That's his name. I've told this story once before, but it, I can't not tell it once again. So Rochelle and I were, uh, we lived in L.A. at the time, and we were driving to see my parents who lived in Seattle, and so we were on I-5, and we were just descending into the San Joaquin Valley, which is this large central valley in the state of California and on Interstate 5. And so we're coming down a section called the Grapevine. And it's this kind of winding section that descends several thousand feet. I don't know how long it is, but just is going back and forth. And then you arrive in the central valley. And we were driving at night. Rochelle was driving at that point. I'm in the passenger seat and right as we arrive at the valley floor we go into the densest fog we have ever experienced <laughs> I mean it was if we had a hood ornament you couldn't see the hood ornament it was so dense well right in that moment a semi went whizzing past us and Rochelle did the really smart thing which was she got right behind that semi uh, as far away as we could get but not so far that we wouldn't see the taillights and we followed those taillights now what was going on there was that the fog was low lying you know it's like the bottom six feet so we're in our little you know passenger car we can't see but he's up above where he can see and so we followed those twin taillights for miles and miles until the fog, the sun came up and the fog cleared. 
That's a picture of what it is for us to trust the Lord. Here's the two taillights. The cross is one. So picture this taillight has a cross on it. God loves you. And this one here is his name. So you can just put Jesus on it. And he loves with a perfect love. He loves you, the cross proves it. And he loves with a perfect love. And I don't care how unglued things seem or the extent to which circumstance, you're going through circumstances that you would say, how can this possibly have a good outcome? My plea to you is follow the taillights. God loves you. The cross is proof. He loves with a perfect love. His name proves it. And that's what the disciples, these two disciples, learned when they looked at all that the scripture says. Romans 10, 8 through 11 says this. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. When you follow the taillights, the outcome may not be what you would have chosen for yourself. But when you trust him, he will take you to a good place. For Rochelle and I, when our son was diagnosed with cancer, we had to follow the taillights. We had to trust him the whole way. There have been numerous other situations in our life where we have had to trust the Lord. He knows what he's doing. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him, will not be disappointed. Do you trust him more than your own eyes? Are you disappointed because your circumstances haven't turned out how you wanted? Trust him. He has a great plan. Trust him. He's making a better you. Read the word to get his perspective and then ask him to help you trust and look at the twin taillights until you get home. I once told this story in a previous church and someone came up to me and told me how they had done the same thing. They were living in New England at the time and they followed the taillights and until the taillights stopped. They didn't know where they were. And the truck driver actually saw them, you know, back there behind his vehicle. And he came to them and talked to them and said, uh, pardon me, are, are, are you okay? He said, well, we were following you because you knew the way. And he says, I just drove home. <laughs> <laughs> now he was kind enough to say I tell you what I'll lead you out and get you back onto the freeway but I love that picture because this is what Jesus is saying he's saying follow the taillights I couldn't love you more than I do the cross and I love you with a perfect love trust me and I will take you all the way home he lives to take us home. Don't want your life to end in disappointment? Call on him. Romans 10 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
and you will not be disappointed. There may be some in this room who have never declared, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. You can do that with something as simple as prayer. Simply saying, I am a sinner who deserves separation from you. But I am in this moment declaring Jesus as my personal Savior. And in a moment, I will give you an opportunity. If you want to pray that prayer, you can do that. And I'm here to tell you that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there may be some in this room who say, well, I'm just not sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not even sure that it's not a myth that he rose. I would just say to you, you come next week where we will listen in on a conversation between Jesus and a guy named Thomas who is a way more stalwart disbeliever than anybody I know. And we'll see what that conversation leads us. So what about you? Would you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Then trust him to take you home. Let's pray. Before I pray, I would like you to fix in your mind a picture of whatever it is that is the trust challenge you are facing. For the disciples on the road, it was that Jesus' plan seems to have run amok. What is it for you? Something where you would say, God, do you know what you're doing? Fix that in your mind and then let me pray for you. Father, there are in this room people who are going through hard things. Situations where they're saying, God, how could this possibly be good? I pray that you would minister to their hearts, that you would give them a fresh glimpse of you, the living Lord, who has made full and sufficient payment for their sin, and that's how much you love them. And that they would be able to say, I know God loves me. I pray that you administer your name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. Father, help them to flee to that strong tower and be able to rest in your character. To know that you know what you're doing and love them with a perfect love. I pray that they would know that. Father, there may be some in this room who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. I pray that you would encourage them to pray along with me a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I deserve eternal separation from you. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I am naming him as my Savior and I am choosing to live for you for the rest of my days, trusting you. Father, we give these words to you, knowing that you love us with a perfect love, and we trust you. Help us to not see with our eyes, but see with the eyes of faith everything that we are looking at all around us, and to walk through, faith, walk through life poised, secure, trusting you no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.